You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about coronavirus and immunodeficiencies. Joining me is Dr. Kate Sullivan, who's the chief of the Division of Allergy and Immunology at CHOP. Thank you so much for joining me today. Katie, nice to be with you today. So CHOP has a clinical pathway for the screening of specialty care and primary care patients with suspected COVID. And in that pathway, one of the high-risk conditions listed is children who are immunocompromised. Certainly, there are many different types of immune compromise, such as genetic causes like CVID or SCID, cancer, HIV, or those taking immunosuppressant medications due to another condition. So I've been wondering this a lot lately as I look at the pathway. Are there certain types of immunodeficiency that are at higher risk of COVID-19? That's a really great question and one that we struggle with all the time. So the data are quite limited, as you might imagine. So there was a study to come out of Italy, which was one of the first European centers that had high, high rates of COVID-19. And they found that among their antibody deficient patients that they did not have a particularly high complication rate. And then there's an unpublished study that I was fortunate enough to be a part of that collected all the cases that we could come up with, ultimately including 71 immune deficient people of all different ages, so adults and children, all different diagnoses, but all who had COVID-19, trying to understand what the risks were. One of the big takeaways from that study was that age trumped immune deficiency. So among the immune deficient patients, the complications and mortality were limited to the adults and the older adults. Now, it's a very heterogeneous group of immune deficiencies, but I think there is an important message there. And we recently admitted a young girl who's quite immune deficient, but she did very well with her COVID-19. So I think the jury's still out on whether there are specific immune deficiencies that are high risk, but certainly the big picture is quite reassuring. And then That's along with HIV and transplant patients where there's emerging literature that other than severely immune compromised patients, most of them do quite well. That's really reassuring. And like you said, it's a heterogeneous group. So it was hard to kind of wrap my head around that. Also, I was thinking about whether or not the risk that we're talking about here is whether they're more likely to get COVID-19 or that they're more likely to have complications from it or both. So when we're talking about risk, can you help me figure out which part of that is riskier for immunosuppressed patients? I think that probably the risk of getting COVID-19 is almost entirely related to exposure. So I could imagine in my head that there would be immune deficiencies where having a virus inoculum of one as opposed to a hundred might lead to disease. But as far as we actually know, other than this figment of my imagination in my head, as far as we actually know, the risk of getting COVID-19 tracks entirely with the exposure. And so what we're talking about is really the risk of complications and severe disease. And so 
certainly early on, the very first paper to be published to come from Wuhan, China, listed the comorbid conditions in their patient population. And 2% of their patients were listed as immune deficient. Now we don't have any more data than that, but it certainly suggests that immune deficient patients are not acting as canaries in the coal mine. They're not getting dramatically different manifestations of disease. And importantly, they don't seem to be more at risk for actually getting the virus. It's really interesting because like many things with COVID, this doesn't fit the typical pattern that we see with a lot of other infectious diseases. So you mentioned before a case of a patient you had who did really well with her COVID-19 infection. What's been your overall experience during this pandemic with immunodeficiency patients at CHOP? Well, Katie, fortunately or unfortunately, we have only had three immune deficient patients get sick. One was an adult who did very, very well. He certainly felt crummy for a few days, but it was not anything more than that. And then there was a little girl who was admitted really as a precautionary measure. But if we hadn't done the COVID-19 testing, we wouldn't really have guessed it. She really did extraordinarily well. And then there is a parent of a patient who's also affected who got it and definitely suffered from it, was out of work and struggling, but was never hospitalized, never needed supplemental oxygen. So my personal experience is very limited, which is why I've been relying on this international study of 71 patients as I start to have conversations with my patients about their personal risks. Well, while it might not be good for data collection, it certainly sounds good for your patients. So that's good to hear. And the mainstays of preventing coronavirus have been social distancing, mask wearing, and hand hygiene. So are there other things that you're telling your patients to do to prevent COVID-19? Not really. There's so few tools in the toolbox, right? That's kind of what we've all got. And what's really interesting is the patients almost uniformly say, you know what? We knew how to do this. We've done this before. We've done this for flu. We've done this in other ways. So the patients sort of feel like they kind of had a corner on the market for all of this before the general population did. That's right. I've heard a lot of immunodeficiency patients saying, like, this is what I always do during flu season. So all of these guidelines feel really familiar for them. Yes, I agree. And I think the patients quite rightly are taking this moment to sort of show others what can be accomplished with these relatively simple ideas. I just read a paper that apparently is the first paper to show that mask wearing is effective and it dates from the 1918 pandemic. And I thought, oh boy, we've known about this a long time. Why is it so hard? Yeah, that's true. I was thinking the same thing. This is, masks are not new. So why are we still trying to wrap our heads around it? I think another thing that I wanted to talk to you about was convalescent plasma. I've heard about it being used in some patients with an acute infection with COVID-19. I know that you have patients who use things like IVIG regularly for their immunodeficiency. So do you think that passive immunity from a product like IVIG may be used in preventing COVID-19 in patients with an immunodeficiency, perhaps living in a high-risk situation? This is guesswork on my part. I don't think so. There was a very high profile editorial in the New York Times by an immunologist much more famous than I am, who said he thought that it might. Um, I don't I don't think so. So yes, you can find antibodies to cross-reacting proteins from other coronaviruses 
in immunoglobulin products. So you can find antibodies that have at least a limited ability to cross-react with SARS-CoV-2. I don't think there's any sense at all that they are protective. And I would cite a couple of studies from about 10 years ago where they tracked kids in New York City and looked at reinfection with coronaviruses. And it did not appear that antibodies to other types of coronaviruses were protective. So we don't really know for COVID-19, but I'm certainly very skeptical that the IVIG product that we have in our hand at the moment offers protection. Now in five years, when there's antibodies from this pandemic in the products, it might. Whether those titers will be high enough remains to be seen. But at this moment, I don't think IVIG provides protection, which is a bit sad. All right. So another thing for us to wait and see what the research bears out in the future, kind of on that note of predicting the future, many people are eagerly anticipating a COVID-19 vaccine. In most of the vaccine plans that I've heard about, high-risk individuals are expected to be the first to receive the vaccine along with first responders. So based on what you know about the vaccines in development, what do you think the efficacy will be for a vaccine in an immunocompromised child? Well, just in preparation for this podcast, I went to a website that lists all the vaccines in development just for a little perspective. So there are 202 potential vaccine options in development. Now there's only about seven front runners. Among those seven front runners are a wide variety of different technologies that are being brought to bear, some of them for the first time, like an RNA vaccine or a DNA vaccine. It's unclear how much those will induce both antibody as well as T cells. And so a lot of our immune deficient patients don't make very good antibodies. And so you might say, well, should we really waste a vaccine on them if they're not gonna be able to make antibodies and they're not gonna get any benefit? Wouldn't we do better by giving that to someone else who can respond to the vaccine appropriately and actually get benefit? I think we won't know until the vaccines are actually out there in clinical trials and we have some data what we hope is that at least a subset of the front runner vaccines will induce T cell immunity so that even if the antibody deficient patients can't make an antibody to it, they will still get benefit because their T cells will have better containment because it will be a memory response to SARS-CoV-2 as opposed to a, a brand new response. There's precedence for that thought among the influenza vaccinees. And so there is some data, I will grant you not fabulous data, but there's some data to suggest that even among patients who don't make great antibodies, that they still get benefit from the flu vaccine by recruiting T cells that can at least mitigate the severity of the infection. So that's a long way around of saying we don't know, but we remain hopeful that at least some of the vaccines will induce T cell immunity so that they could be harnessed for antibody deficient patients, which is the most common type of immune deficiency that we care for. That's great to know that we can draw a little bit of information from vaccines that we already have and how our patients are responding to those to potentially predict how they're going to respond to the COVID vaccine. And I know that was an unfair question because you can't predict the future, nor are you a vaccine developer. So uh, sorry for the unfair question, but it is helpful to have your perspective on that. Well, I've been tutored well by Paul Offit, so uh, many thanks to him. And he tutors us on this podcast all the time, too. So we appreciate that and all the people who are working on this vaccine. 
Now, the reopening of schools is a hot topic right now. For many children, the AAP supports returning to school if the situation allows for it. However, it could be safer for high-risk patients to stay with virtual education this fall. I know a lot of parents are struggling with this decision and asking their pediatricians for guidance. So how are you counseling parents who are worried about sending their immunodeficient child back to school? Well, Katie, speaking of unfair questions, boy, there's no right answer here. I will say that I personally have kind of a three-point checklist for my patients. One, I use the CHOP Policy Lab to figure out what the prevalence in the community of the patient is. So I don't want to know what the prevalence was last month. I want to know what is it right now today and is it rising or going down? So that's number one. If the prevalence in the community is very high, I personally don't think the school has any business opening. And to be fair, the schools have been really conscientious. I'm sure you have noticed as well how proactive the schools were at the outset of this pandemic. So number one on my checklist is to ask, what is the prevalence of COVID-19 in the community? And I do like the CHOP Policy Lab tracking app that they have. Number two on my checklist is how old is the patient? Are they old enough where they're going to be in a cohort where they can be expected to wash their hands or use other modes of hand hygiene? Can they respect the masking? So some of it is age. And then the third point on my checklist is what type of immune deficiency the patient has. So I mentioned early on that we think Folks with antibody deficiencies aren't necessarily at higher risk than the general population. We worry a little bit more about folks with neutrophil problems and folks with T-cell problems, although we don't have a lot of data. So those are kind of my three-point checklist for figuring out if a patient can go back to school. You're right. That was another unfair question for you. But (laughs) I do like your three-point checklist. And certainly that policy lab prediction tool that you mentioned is something that we use a lot in primary care and I think is a really helpful guidepost to what's going on in the community, which, as you said, really does inform a lot of the decisions that we're making, because even within Pennsylvania, there's a lot of variability from county to county, whether you live in the city or the suburbs, there are a lot of factors to consider when advising a family. And these are pretty individual decisions. So I would, again, encourage everybody to speak to their primary care pediatrician. And when there's a specialist like you involved, then also get your advice. You're right to say it's very individual because there are also parental issues as well. And so it's a very complex topic. And I know the school districts have really grappled in a very difficult way with this. Well, one of the unexpected positives that comes from all of this and might continue in the fall if we see more students staying home from school is that there have been fewer other contagious illnesses due to social distancing. So how has social distancing impacted the number of infections that your patients typically get? It is exactly as you would predict. So we've had fewer antibiotic prescriptions, fewer admissions. And interestingly, a parent that I was talking to just this week said it has just been a sea change for her son. And I'll also say that I work with Jonathan Spurgle in allergy, and he has commented that asthma admissions, just generally speaking, not among immune deficient patients, but asthma admissions in general have been down probably related to the lack of other respiratory viruses, but possibly because mask wearing decreases pollen inhalation as well, which I think is a really interesting idea. 
That's a great point that you bring up. Jonathan said the same thing to me in a media town hall that we did together. And he was mentioning, too, that a lot of times patients think that their child can't wear a mask because of their asthma and then it's going to be harder for them to breathe. But he said it's actually the opposite, like you mentioned, that it's beneficial for kids with asthma to wear their mask and for kids with allergies. So it's sort of a win-win in that you're helping prevent the spread of coronavirus as well as potentially having a benefit on your asthma and allergies and keeping children healthier. Yeah, it's not the way we would choose to do it, but there has been benefit and it sometimes has come out in surprising ways. One of the things, though, that worries primary care pediatricians is that some children are not coming in for routine preventative care and immunizations. I know that the CDC is also worried about this, and certainly immunizations are important for protecting immunodeficient patients who either may not respond to or are ineligible to receive certain vaccines. So are you worried at all about a resurgence of vaccine-preventable diseases, things like measles, for example, in addition to COVID-19? I am. I have a very good friend who's a colleague that works in Mexico City. So in Mexico City and a couple of other regions in Mexico, they had a measles epidemic, a a serious outbreak that preceded COVID-19. And as you and I know, one of the maneuvers when there's a measles outbreak is to go into the community and vaccinate everyone you can get your hands on. That has not been possible because COVID-19 intervened. And so In addition to struggling with COVID-19, and Mexico, just the same as us, has quite a significant outbreak, they now have a measles outbreak to grapple with at the same time that they're not able to combat using our traditional strategies. So yes, having heard from my friend Saul, I am quite worried about that. And that adds additional burden on the healthcare system. It's a lot harder to find those patients, like you mentioned, if they're not getting preventative care. So there's a lot of challenges within that. So I know we are encouraging everyone who is a CHOP patient to come in for their immunizations that we are providing safe care for your children to reach us even during the pandemic. Yes, I think it's so important to not neglect our usual primary care, especially because we know some of the comorbidities are things that primary care physicians typically handle, things like type 2 diabetes, things like obesity. I think it's even more important, but so hard to get that message out and to help people feel comfortable doing it. I agree. And we're working on that. And so is uh, CHOP PR and marketing trying to get the word out to families about how important this is. But for the pediatricians who are listening, where can they go to learn more about COVID-19 and immunodeficiencies since we're just scratching the surface with this podcast? If they want more information on caring for those patients, where can we point them? Well, the information is not really targeted at physicians. It's targeted to patients, but there's actually quite a wealth of information on the Immune Deficiency Foundation website, and I think that's an excellent place to go. I would start there, but actually you're at the forefront. This is a very small specialty, and so there's not a lot of educational materials out there yet directed at physicians. There is a burgeoning effort because it is, as you pointed out at the very beginning, one of the conditions that we think should be at higher risk. And so I think there is a real dearth and a real knowledge gap and educational materials are sorely needed. So there are efforts to improve that area, but right now the best information is actually patient-directed. I like hearing that we're at the forefront, so thanks for that compliment. (laughs) But I think that, like you said, it's always 
better to be cautious as something is new like this and the knowledge is developing on COVID-19 so rapidly as we're only a few months into understanding this new condition and being cautious with our immunodeficiency patients makes sense, but I'm glad to hear from you that so far they've been doing well. I would love to have you give us, since we covered a lot of information today, your top three takeaway points that you want pediatricians to remember about treating patients with an immunodeficiency during COVID. Well, I would say number one, and it comes as a surprise to me, as it probably does many people, immune deficiencies are not necessarily a strong risk factor for severe disease. What a surprise, right? And as you point out, so different than other viral infections. Now, I will say we don't know very much about MIS-C, and could there be an increased risk of MIS-C among immune deficient patients, that post-infectious inflammatory condition that looks like Kawasaki? That is as yet unknown. So I'll leave that as an unknown asterisk. I would say bullet number two is that vaccines are still applicable. And when the vaccines are available, I will certainly recommend to my patients that they go ahead and get the vaccine as long as it is not a replicating viral vaccine, which there are only a couple in development. And then number three is maybe a bit of a philosophical bullet, I would say. And I've said this on a couple of videos as well. I have never seen science and medicine move so rapidly and so cooperatively and so collaboratively. It's actually been a very positive thing to come out of this. I struggle sometimes to see anything about COVID-19 that's positive, but people have come together in an unprecedented way, shared data, shared experiences, and so, I hope this is a model for the future because it has really allowed such rapid transformation of our healthcare to combat this virus. So that's my philosophical bullet point. I love that. I think there have been a few positives in this podcast, actually. It was pretty uplifting for me to hear about what's going on with our immunodeficient patients. And I, I think what I heard there was you saying that you want to come back in about six months and tell us what's happening with Miss C and immunodeficiency patients. So you may hear more from us in the future about that. But thank you so much for joining me today. Totally my pleasure, Katie. (laughs) All right. Thank you. And you can find some of the resources that Dr. Sullivan mentioned on our website, which is www.chop.edu slash PCP podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.